do you love podcasts? At CFUV, we feature programs about Victoria life, intersectional feminism, experimental fiction, Victoria's thriving music scene, and UVic life. Check out our website, cfuvpodcasts.com. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Spread the word. Through my mom. Hands Passing Forward is about Indigenous artists transferring skills for the artists of tomorrow. This series documents traditional skills shared in fine detail through thoughtful artist interviews and conversations and also soundscapes from artist studios. My goal was to share insight into the actual processes while archiving mentorship relationships between Indigenous artists. To me, respectful interviewing means deeply listening for the why they weave, how decisions are made, what's appropriate to share in a carving, especially what is happening energetically when you sit beside an elder and learn from their hands and their voices. Creating soundscapes was my way to better communicate, try to capture that moment of transfer. The knowledge and artistry being transferred is a treasure beyond measure. We often hear or say since time immemorial. This series is about for time immemorial too. This series was generously funded by the First Peoples Cultural Council, sharing traditional arts across generations award. In this story, I interview contemporary Coast Salish carver Jesse Rakama. I wanted to gain insight on what motivates and inspires these essential transmitters, transmitting intergenerational language art making. Jesse is a full-time artist and a part-time language teacher. He shares art and language across generations, whether that's through language classes at local schools, through his own art making, art shows, and his artist talks with a larger community. So my name is Jesse Rakelma, and I am a member of the Qualicum First Nation with roots in a number of other different communities. Um, 
However, I primarily identify as a Coast Salish Indian living on Vancouver Island. So lar- largely overall, uh, I grew up uh, I grew up within a cultural context in the sense that um, my my family would make sure that I would be in attendance of of a number of cultural events, uh, ceremonies, namings, memorials, funerals, and and whatnot as I was growing up. Um, however, at the same time, that was sort of juxtaposed by uh, me growing up also in a in a primarily white town, a very very Eurocentric small town um, in around Qualicum Beach, where the majority of the population are people who are retiring, and um, quite frankly, like most of them were white and, and had a very white understanding of how things work. And growing up also in like sort of like that, you know, an era that I would describe as also the uh, uh, the emergence of cell phone technology and and uh, post 9-11 world of the emergence of the internet and and sort of understand looking looking at the concepts of, of uh, I think both different aspects of racism and and uh, technological advancement and my my grandfather being an artist um, I think really really sort of gave a bit of uh, a different perspective on how indigenous people were viewed within where within where I grew up because for the most part indigenous people were understood to have to essentially be uh, extinct and or non-existent whereas there was obviously a, a population from the reserve that went to the schools and the high school and the middle school um but still sort of like, you know, growing up with the understanding that this is no longer a relevant culture in in the conventional world. Um, and so as a result of that, it's something where I would effectively deny or or try to, uh, to like, you know, abstain from um, understanding and accepting a cultural existence um, until I reached you know, point in my life where I decided, okay, you know what, this, uh, indigenous thing isn't really going to go away. I'm sort of stuck with this. Um, so I'll start to embrace it. And, um, looking at sort of how a lot of other artists produced, I wanted to, I wanted to be, you know, a person to produce my own stuff. And, the part of the problem being that living in a in a rather white area in a community that um, doesn't have a plethora of you know well known artists. You know, my grandfather was a woodworker and uh, he was a painter, but like he wasn't a carver. He he didn't do the same art style that I do, and so as a as a result, I. I you, when I decided I was going to be doing art more, taking art more seriously, I didn't really have anybody to mentor under. Um, and so a lot, as a result, I, I decided that I wanted to just sort of figure things out for myself. And, and so that's sort of what I did. And that's sort of how, 
the culture I lived in prepared me for that. And in a way, like, you know, I really had, I really have to try and discipline myself as best as I can because I had to, I have to look at sort of what sort of tools I have to my avail to use in order to create something. And a lot of the time I try to do as much as I can with hand tools. Like when I'm covering a pole, I'll definitely, I'll still use a chainsaw to do a lot of blocking out. Uh, but for the most part, I prefer to do the dirty work per se with, with, uh, you know, with hand tools. Um, and I think that really affects sort of like the relationship that you build with your, with your piece. Um, and you know, that, that also is always going to depend on what you're carving too, because some things you can only really use hand tools for and some things it's just a lot faster using power tools for and some things. Um, like if I'm building a loom, then, it's just a lot more efficient if I have to build like 10 to just use the machines in the workshop. Whereas if I were going to be doing, and that, that would also really depend on, on how, uh, how I would be making the loom in the sense that am I making a loom that's sort of an art piece or am I making a loom that is focused on being a loom? Um, and you know, that's something too, that, that really influences, um, aspects of what I make and and I look at that and I really like to make things that are more practical. There's things that I like, you know, that I do create for like, you know, a visual purpose, uh, but I I much prefer making something that has some sort of practical use to it. So I make a lot of paddles. I cover a fair amount of paddles um, because there's something that you can you can use, like you know people can use a paddle, and I like making combs because people use combs. For I like making looms because people use looms. There's something that can that can um, that, that they can have an aesthetic to them, and at the same time have a productive value to them. And and so like my my thought behind a lot of this is like like when you're when you're someone who's a member of a community or a member of a society, everything that you do should be able to have a benefit for everybody else. And so when I make something, it's something that somebody else can use. It's something that somebody else can create more stuff out of. And so there's like a production value to it that's not like what I, the production value isn't what I produce, but it's sort of how it's going to be used after it's been created. Um, and that's, you know, growing up understanding that like you always have to find ways to keep yourself busy. You know, you, uh, one, one elder, you know, said to me once that, that, um, there's a lot of knowledge out there and if you don't use it, you're, you, you make it useless. And if you don't have that knowledge, you're useless. In a way, like if you're not contributing to the community, then you're just leeching off everybody else. So um, to put it, put it bluntly, that, that's, you know, sort of, that, 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 that really stuck in my head when, when he said that. So I try to remember to, when I, when I make things, I make it so that it's got a purpose to it. So it's not just... It's not just nothing. It's not just sort of taking up space. Yeah, I'm glad that you circle back in your conversation there when, because you were reading my mind about 
community and giving back to community, but also empowering others. And that's what you're doing when you're describing a loom as a tool that someone else can make art with. Do you remember, or maybe you can tell me about any significant life events that might have played a role in creating the artist in you? So when my grandfather was sick, um, we had started to started to get rid of his stuff while he was still alive, um, just to make it just to make it easier for dealing with uh, things after he passed, so that there's less sort of less stuff that we have to really worry about um, in terms of you know who gets what and all that stuff. Uh, and as we were cleaning out his work desk, I had found a carving knife and I, I wanted it. <laughs> I, I wanted to try it. Like, you know, I wanted to sort of see what I could do with it. Um, and it was, it was sharp and it was, it had a carved handle and it was sort of in the, the handle was sort of in the shape of a frog's head. Um, and it was a single edged blade with a single bevel that essentially it was a whittling knife. Um, and I still have it, but it became something that uh, allowed me to sort of take that interest in carving and just see what, see what I could do with it and sort of see if it's something that I wanted to like, you know, I definitely, after I got that, I wanted to find more knives to work with, and um, that was that was a significant one because that ultimately would sort of become, you know, the tool that started it all, sort of to put it to put it one way. Ha, 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 ha. 
Yeah, get the log into there. there. <clears throat> when you're creating something, do you have an idea already in your head who your audience is going to be for a particular piece? And maybe you could describe if some pieces are for a specific group of people and that others might be for another. And um, do you ever have concerns or hesitations around how someone might perceive your work if it's going to be interpreted differently than how you intended? I think if I am commissioned to do a piece, whoever is commissioning it from me, like, you know, gives me sort of what their wishes to see in a piece. And as an artist, at the same time, I'm going to do what I want. Because when you hire an artist, you hire an artist for their work, for their style. If you wanted something that just sort of anybody could do, then you could hire anybody else. But I'm going to do what I want to do. And you're, and you're hiring me because of what I'm able to do and what I do with my stuff. Um, now, that's for commissioned work. And when I have a commissioned piece, you know, I get, you know, that vision in my head of how, of what I want to create and how I'm going to create it. And I can do sketches to be like, this is what it may look like. But essentially, that's exactly what it is, is what it may look like. Chances are it's going to look way different from what I've drawn out on paper because uh, I might be working on something and be like, you know what? No, I'm going to change this. I'm going to change this. I'm going to change this. Um, sometimes it's for a practical purpose because it's not going to work the way I'd intended or it's going to be something where I like the way that that looks better. Um, however, if you know, we're looking at, at designed things, um, For, for an example, I've done I've done a t-shirt design. The lab, one of the last t-shirt designs that I did, um, I did what I my intention was to have it be two tadpoles, and so they have a they they have a shared sort of head, and then the tails. Um, sort of go off almost like they're in like a sp like they're like almost like a spiral, but they go off to the side. Um, and I look at that and, and you know noting that it is two tadpoles. However, to a Harry Potter fan, it might be a snitch. It might be something you know like that the, they may see uh, as as uh, um, something from from a pop culture pop culture reference of theirs that essentially I'm jumping on the marketing um, plant tr train for, for certain things. But yeah, I, th I think in terms of, of uh, um, marketing designs, you, you have to in a number of ways, but you know, I, I can, when I'd be selling these shirts at markets, I would say like, you know, this, these are two tadpoles. Um, and I had one lady who, who said to me that, she really liked that because it reminded her of a time when she was um, a young girl and, and, and her and her friends would, would always be out. One of the things they'd do a lot together was catch tadpoles and it might give her a feeling of nostalgia. And 
it's exactly why she bought that design was because it was tadpoles. And I have to recognize that when I create a design, I can have what my intention is for the piece, but I can't deny somebody else's interpretation and like, you know, what it might speak to them. So while I may, you know, I, I can create this art piece that can speak on to speak to the, uh, issues of globalization or the silence of whatever political issue I feel like talking about. But, you know, if somebody sees something else within that and that's why they buy it, I don't feel like I have a right to totally deny their interpretation. And sometimes it may be something that someone that speaks to someone from that piece. And sometimes it might just be that they like it. And if they, I think if they happen to like, you know, connect with what my intention is, then I think that's cool. I think that's sort of a plus. If they deny my intention, if they say that, no, you're wrong about that, then I say, okay, well, that's less cool because that's, you're talking to the artist here. <laughs> um, but like, it, it's something where uh, everybody's going to have us have a different view of, of, uh, you know, the same thing because everybody's going to be looking at it from a different perspective. And in, you know, looking at this glass I have in front of me, I see it from this perspective and I look and see that it may be facing towards me. Whereas from across the table, it, it, you're, it's being viewed from a different perspective in a different angle, a different lights hitting it. And, you know, there's all sorts of different ways that we have to be prepared in order for someone to, um, view it. And I think also it is important to note though, too, is that people, you, you have to be careful with that at the same time because people can also potentially use that against you if they say, oh, well, this is how I interpret it, therefore that's what you're saying. And then I have to note that, no, you're putting words in my mouth. That is not what I'm trying to say. That's what you're reading into it. And you know, these are what my intentions are. So often when I have a piece that I, you know, that I have a specific message for, you know, I, I might try to create something that will go along with that to explain that versus just having somebody, if, if mostly for like, you know, for the downside of somebody who's going to try and take what I've done and, and put words in my mouth that I didn't speak or even think of or intend. Um, so in terms of, you know, do I have sort of concern about, about that? Sort of, but not really. So that sort of leads me to another question about art making and politics, mm -hmm. art making and communicating your values and your views. I try to keep my art sort of separate from politics in, 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 in that like, like it, I, I see so much sort of political turmoil amongst people um, you know, within band politics, within provincial politics, within federal politics, within American politics, within, like, you know, any sort of level of politics that, like, that's not something that I want to give attention to. Not something that, you know, it gets enough attention in the newspapers and, and, um, and, you know, I try, I try to think of, like, you know, a lot of the pieces that I have done, either on display or, or, or um, 
you know that are on display and and or shirts that I've designed. Um, I have done pieces for political organizations, and I have done pieces for, um, you know, educational institutions and and you know for the most part I I try to keep political involvement within the piece itself to a minimum or like a, like a full on political message I try to keep to a minimum because um it like it, it can like you know become a it can become a footnote that 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 can that can stick with you and I think I've done a pretty decent job of keeping my keeping my stuff sort of like you know apolitical um which I think itself in itself is a political stance by by sort of recognizing that the politics that are that that are sort of involved are not the politics of the culture that uh, the piece belongs to. I try to focus on, um, you know, the old the aspects of the old world, um, but viewed from a more contemporary perspective, where you know we're not just looking at how we can sort of combat, you know, a, a potentially oppressive regime. We're looking at ways in which we can empower ourselves. And without, in, in a way, I would say, you know, by, by ignoring um, an oppressive regime where, where we don't sort of accept its existence as being a governing force in our world. And... You know, it's our history that's a governing force in our world. It's our families that are governing forces in the world. And, you know, the rest are just politics and paychecks. Do you think there is a connection between your spiritual part of yourself and your own creative, your own creativity? So, this one, this one goes back into my formal Western education in my undergrad in philosophy and liberal studies. Um, and despite how much, like, you know, I love indigenous art and how the indigenous artists that I could list off that, you know, influence me, um, I can't deny, you know, the Western art world that has also influenced me and particularly I love Renaissance art specifically like Italian Renaissance art uh, I think Italian Renaissance art and architecture because I think like, essentially they, they go they go hand in hand in terms of sort of what ideologies they they carry along with them and you know Michelangelo's good I like Michelangelo. I like more more so I like the um methodology that Michelangelo exudes when he is working on a sculpting piece in which you know the general story that you know that I was what I was told was that that when he is carving into marble his belief was that the figure is already in the marble and he's just sort of draining the bathtub. He's just taking that, taking away what's sort of covering what's already in there. And I think that's a really important thing for 
for me to like that, that I that I often like you know sort of think of in terms of myself as as an artist, and this is where the connection with the philosophy comes in. Where in a lot of Western philosophy, um, based on the influence from a lot of Western philosophy, um, predominantly Friedrich Nietzsche, where I'd like you know take. The artist is like the interpreter of reality. I don't think it's an actual quote by him, but it's one that, like you know, that I that I often sort of look at in terms of how would I define an artist, and we're like the interpreters and the architects of reality. We take what we see, what we perceive, and we reconfigure it to be something artistic, you know. And I think that's something that all artists do. I was having this discussion with my with my cousin when I was in when we were in England about um, Aristotle and the and 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 his form and his four causes. Um, what makes something something? What what gives something the power to be something? And looking at uh, see if I can remember these all properly. There's the formal cause. So the. I think the the example that that Aristotle himself gives is is the the chalice, the chalice, and the formal cause is is like the idea of the chalice, like what makes what makes it what it is. There is the material cause, and that is looking at um, what types of materials are used, what aspect of that object is 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 uh, an aspect of material being used. And his chalice was a silver chalice. So looking at the alloys that um, are used in order to make it what it is. And there is the efficient cause, which is the actual, the, the act of creation, the act of making something what it is. So the crafting of the, of the chalice. And then finally there is the the final cause, which is the final product, we have we have the chalice that was created using the other the other causes, and that is like a world that is the world that the artist is connected with. The artist is that bridge. The artist, being the efficient cause, um, has that duty to take what they perceive and create it as something. And, you know, that's in a way like, you know, how I perceive that concept of a spiritual self in that, that, that world that we exist in is this world. And when we look at, at sort of what people would refer to as cryptozoology or like, like different the different creatures that we talk about in the old stories, like, you know, Thunderbirds and uh, Wild Men of the Woods and Wild Women of the Woods and, and Sea Serpents and all those things, it, it's, you know, people re- refer to it all as just sort of stories and tales, things we tell our kids. But, like, that's like, that's a belief or a perception from people who don't belong to a culture who don't belong to the histories that these stories are tied to. And 
how do we perceive the existence of these creatures? When we think of, you know, a a sea serpent, do we think of like, you know, just a snake in the water? Or when we think of a thunderbird, do we just think of this big bird in the sky? And, and, you know, the artist is, is the one that gives people that idea of how these things existed. And it's difficult at times to really like, you know, have that full picture of, of what we create. And that sort of ideal looking into that formal cause, it, it's, 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 an, it's, it's a necessary connection to have in order to be an artist. Because that, that sort of idea world, that idea, that world where, where we have an idea of how things look and how things should be, it's essential to have that connection in order to be an artist. And I think without that, then I don't, th- but without that connection to the formal world or to like, you know, that, that world we're understanding where these, where these histories are and how they exist, I think without that connection, I don't think you can properly be an artist because you're just creating somebody else's ideas. Which I think is, is um, you know, if you're just using somebody else's ideas solely instead of coming up with your own, then, then, then you're a scam artist. Would be I think the the uh, um, the most appropriate term for that, um, and and that's sort of how I think that we can sort of look at when we start to see see that world of cultural appropriation. That's where you have all these people who are, you know, they're riding on the coattails of somebody else and they're profiting off it and they're doing so at the detriment of those who, who belong to these uh, stories and these ideas, who, who belong to this culture that um, has lifted them up for since time immemorial. And... I think it's having that connection that really provides us as First Nations artists, that provides us with a foundation that's strong enough that we can stand on to be like, I know that I have a right to this art style because I can, you know, draw my lineage back to here for, you know, this many generations. Like, you know, we, we have these stories of how we belong here and that is how we were able to connect our right to what we do. With the younger crew, we are going to read, well, I'm going to read them um, some stories in an indigenous language that would have been a dialect close to the dialect spoken here, although not exactly the same dialect, but probably also shared stories. Um, And then their job is to 
interpret a scene from a story. And the intention is not for them to draw indigenous art, but to draw how they interpret a scene from the story. So, we were looking at the distinction of of uh, specifically uh, appropriation and appreciation of indigenous art, uh, where appropriation being where somebody is is using somebody else's style uh, for their own personal benefit, whereas you know appreciating on 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 the other side of that is is exactly just sort of like you know looking at someone's art and understanding the value that exists behind someone's ability to create this and and the rights they have in order to create something versus just taking the style for yourself and you know the example that I use I designed a spindle whirl and on the spindle whirl um for those of people who don't know what a spindle whirl is, it is traditionally it was a, a spinning tool or implement that was used to spin wool, and it was uh, the old ones were about eight eight to ten inches wide max, round in diameter, and they often had uh, carved designs on them that shared. Well, the designs they they would sort of be unique to each spinner um, and they would be convex and the design, design would be on the convex side and that would be facing the spinner and they were they were the source of what a lot of Coast Salish artists use now for uh, style and design in the sense that the shapes that were used to um, define and decorate spindle whirls are often now the ones used to um, create contemporary Coast Salish art. And the spindle whirl that I designed has two wolves and there is, in the middle of the spindle whirl, is a whirlpool. And this is to look at and, and and the purpose of that was was to illustrate that that, that wolf that those wolves in that whirlpool may belong to a story um they may be characters represented in a story, and the artist may have been someone who belonged to that story 
and I, I don't want to say that the, that the story belonged to that artist, um, because one of the one of the distinctions is that for for us is that it's not specific to say that somebody owns something, but somebody has a right to something. Somebody belongs to something, and it's it's a tricky way of discussing in the Western world because um, Western ears here. I don't own that, therefore nobody owns that, therefore I can have it. So everybody has their identity. Everybody has that place that they come from. Everybody has that story that put them where they are. And that doesn't have to be somebody else's art style. And and in a lot of ways, like, you know, that's where, where people, you know, look at what brought them to where they are and what gave them their connection to where they are and and how how they find that within themselves you know is is up to them and yeah it's not to say that they can't make art it's to say that there's there's something within them that they belong to that isn't indigenous art. That isn't art that you know, like they're meant to to create. And rather that there's stuff that they there's a lot more that they can create based on what they have their historical connections to. And it's important for them to use those connections and and create something that has more meaning for them than something that is appropriated from somebody else. And everybody, you know, everybody has, like, you know, a means of traveling by water, means by traveling by land, traveling by air, and they connect themselves to that. And they connect themselves to their roots, they connect themselves to their parents, their grandparents, great-grandparents, and at some point they find out, you know, an aspect of their heritage that they might not have known and, and that uh, as, as like an art form that they may not realize they have a connection to. And through that they begin to flourish. And they can like, they can flourish within their own, within their own way. And it's, it's about creating the it's, it's it's for for us it's about establishing the boundaries of what is acceptable and what is unacceptable as ways of understanding our art and i think a lot of people sometimes that when they hear that they they're saying we're preventing them from creating 
when the reality is we're saying, no, like you got this rich history here that has, you know, a vast, you know, plethora of art forms that, you know, are really being used in the same way now. And this isn't limited to how we perceive conventional visual art. This isn't limited to uh, to carving, to painting, to you know other methods of design or or, or song. Like this is looking at how you know, looking at at like you know a, a metallurgy, looking at blacksmithing, looking at textiles, looking at um, farming, looking at cooking, looking at like anything, like these things are all considered arts within our world, but we're limiting what we perceive as art to what is actually referred to as fine art. And we're ignoring all these other hidden talents that exist within our heritage. And like, you know, one, one sort of criticism I get a lot about, like when I, when I try to tell people that not to appropriate indigenous art is, well, you people are all using our tools, like you're using metal and, and, you know, you're doing, you know, you're, you're studying Renaissance art, you know, study your own stuff. And, you know, what they're not looking at is that we belong to that Western culture too. You know, we've grown up within... You know, we've grown up within the small town. We've grown up within the big city. We've grown up in these places. And we're told that these are the histories of art, and this is these are significant in art history, and and then they're trying to tell us that that our art history, you know, they they openly share that Western art history within their school system. We don't share that for a reason. And so to say that we don't belong to that is sort of the opposite of what they've been telling us all along. And it's, it's something where, you know, we we're also have to note that we're not a stagnant culture. Culture isn't a stagnant thing. And... that Western culture is actively being shared with us. For a period of time, it was forced on us, and it's still forced on us. However, we're not sharing what we create and what we know to people who who don't understand the value of what that art means. We're not sharing our songs with people who think that they can just go and you know, sing them at a birthday party for fun without knowing what it actually means. We're not, you know, creating an art piece for somebody to be like, oh yes, I'm going to draw this and duplicate this without knowing what it means. There's a full value in all of this stuff. And while, you know, while we study our art history, or their art history, we know what that means. We know what the purpose was. We're given all, the, all those ingredients to be able to create it for ourselves. They're sharing it with us. We're not sharing it in the same way. And I think that's important for people to recognize is that we're not giving people a license to create indigenous art by sharing indigenous art. And that they have a lot more that they of their own stuff that they can work with if they're looking hard enough.
so it's a piece that's a work in progress right now. Um, it is a two foot round red cedar panel and originally I had it's it's a sun the design is a sun and originally I had done a different piece than the one that I had than the one that I ended up using but I really wasn't happy with it I wasn't happy with the way that the nose on the sun turned out. I wasn't happy with the way I carved out the eyes. I was happy with the mouth and the and the rays, but nothing else on it. So I decided that, no, I'm not going to finish that piece. And so I got a different piece of wood. And at first I really had to overcome the fact that I was, you know, wasting a beautiful chunk of wood. But at the same time, it, it I couldn't accept that as a piece that I wanted to, you know, attach my name to, essentially. Um, so I redid a piece. And I did... I did it very differently than the one that I had first done. The first one that I had done for the sun, I probably... The sun probably took over about two-thirds of the... of the circular panel, the bottom third being almost like a landscape sort of portion of it. Looked, it sort of mimicked, uh, you know, an ocean. it was going to mimic an ocean front. Um, instead, I had the sun take over the whole piece. And... I gave it very fine contours in terms of the sort of the cheekbones and the chin and I made sure to put depth in the lips and give it some definition and I gave the eyes a lot more definition than I'd originally planned on as well. You can see a there was a there was a brow line and it is a solid yet soft brown there at brow line and it sort of encompasses a face to go fit within the sun and i'm really proud of the way that i added depth into the cheeks and the lips to make it sort of quasi realistic in terms of an art piece and I tried similar like pieces before, but I'm really happy with the way this turned out in, in, in regards to it reflecting uh, uh, sun design. Because I also think that it's something that, that the, way, the, way it's, the way it's designed is not a way you would commonly see a sun being designed. And because most of the time you see... Um, the sun rays coming off the sides of the piece, and I didn't feel like doing that. So I figured I had to let myself fill the space that I was given, and I feel like I've done that with this piece. And when it's done, you'll be able to see this at the Faye Smith Memorial Pavilion in Qualicum Beach.
along with a number of other pieces that um, will all go together in, in making a public display. I think it, that it's important for young indigenous people to see things that they can feel a connection to because in a lot of ways, a lot of people have been so out of touch with their culture and their heritage um, that everything's almost sort of hidden behind a shroud. You can just see like, you know, like a light, texture of of like you know what that cultural heritage is and and then sometimes people don't realize that all they have to do is they have to lift up the shroud and take a look and for some people that shroud is really heavy for some people that shroud whenever they go to touch it it burns them and for some people it's really easy to they for they can just take it right off and see what's there waiting for them and the truth of the matter is when when it's there you don't know how it's going to react when you go to take it off to see what's behind the veil and for some people it's a lot of work to realize what they have to do in order to take that shroud off. You know, some people there when they when it's too heavy, you know, they they it's because they feel that they're, they're too weak and they can't lift it off. And they have to really build a lot of strength in order to lift it up just a couple inches and see what's underneath. But for some people, you know, they they really have to that, that whenever that shroud burns them, they have to find ways to thicken their skin or put on gloves and protect themselves when they go to lift it off. But, like, it's it's there. And they they won't really see what's there until they approach it. And they won't see what's underneath until they try to take the shroud off and see what it reveals for them. And for every person, it's going to be something different because cultural experience is different for everybody and everybody is going to find something different within that underneath that shroud and it may be the same object but someone's going to find something different each time they remove that shroud and to see a young person take a legitimate authentic interest in that adds a lot of value to the experience, not only for the artist, but for that individual. And my, my rule, like, you know, for me as, as, a, as an artist, um, 
Like, I'll teach anybody who's willing to learn. But they have to show me that they're willing to learn. So, if you want to learn to carve, get your own knives. You come to me. I'll teach you what you want, but you got to come to me. Because then that's showing me that you're willing to take the steps in order to learn that. Like, you know, when people really take those steps, you know that they're going to, that they can, there's a potential for them to find a lot of value in what's going to be underneath that shroud. So, that was good to see. And I hope that it's something that she can find a lot of value in and know that there's more than one source of that knowledge. And knowledge is, is to, to me, knowledge is very important. And it comes along with sort of like, you know, the wisdom of being able to know the proper movements and the improper movements, the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. You have been listening to Hands Passing Forward, a collection of audio stories created and produced by Audette Augier. This series emerged from our First Peoples Cultural Council project, sharing traditional arts across generations. It features interviews with Jesse Rakalma, Pamela Post, Sozan Blaney, and Cole Speck. Original music for this series is by Johnny Hanus, with special thanks to Dan Peters of Spark Music and the Podcast From Here workshop. This series is funded in part by the Community Radio Fund of Canada. To find more cutting-edge, award-winning, and locally-made podcasts, visit cfuvpodcasts.com. Masicho for listening, and have a really nice day.